Welcome to the Microdosing for Healing podcast. I'm your host, Casey Garrett, and together we'll be discovering and learning from inspiring voices of healers, medicine keepers, and visionaries. Every episode, we'll explore the world of health, vibrant wellness, and natural medicine for a new era of human society. Welcome to today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome. So nice to be with you all today. Today, I'm really excited to share with you three women in the psychedelic field that I hold so much respect for. We are quite literally stretched all around the world with this crew today. We have Micah Stover, Jessica Lagarde, and Melissa Ruvidis with us today from Mexico, the Netherlands, and Canada. So very excited for you to meet all of them. Highly, highly encourage all of you to follow their work. It is profound. So we have so much to dive into. We'll get right to it. I'm going to start off by introducing Jessica first. So Jessica is originally from Brazil and is a trauma-informed plant medicine facilitator, earth keeper, educator, and the Women on Psychedelics co-founder. Women on Psychedelics is an organization committed to connection and community, fostering a culture of holistic healing and authentic self-expression for empowered female autonomy. Jessica's environmental work and psychedelic path have made her more aware not only of the crisis of our planet, but also of how disconnection is a direct cause of it. All of her work is informed by taking action in a way that serves the earth and our human collective in hopes of mobilizing inner healing towards outer action. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd love for you to open and just share a little bit about Women on Psychedelics, which is the organization that brought the three of you all together. So I'd love for you to share about the background and mission and just whatever you'd like to share about Women on Psychedelics. <laughs> thank you, Casey. And thank you for the invitation, of course. Well, basically, WHOOP, Women on Psychedelics, is started in 2020 as a passion project. It was re really literally in the middle of the pandemic. And it was in a moment of my life in which I feel like I do not have much of a voice. And it was really born from that place, which is quite interesting because it became a platform to give women voice in this space. So what is the most amazing about it is everything that we have built so far it was done through collaborations and literally from women from all over the globe that have reached out to me and Tian, who is the other co-founder, and said, oh, I like what you're doing. Can I jump in and can I help? And this is actually how I got to know Micah and Melissa. They have been literally with us from the start. So that's pretty cool also to see how each of us have developed in our personal and professional lives in this space. So it has been quite of a journey, yeah, since back then. And right now we are in a moment in which, like, after, yeah, three years of WHOOP being there as an educational platform and having more of this passive educational role in this space, we are working in relaunching the website. We are looking again into our mission and why we exist and really trying to bring a bit more focus on how can we actually provide more holistic content and educational, continue to have the educational free resources that we always have out there, but also how can we bring more of online programs, online events, in-person events and retreat 
in which we can actually foster a community uh, with everything that we are doing, even if we are in different parts of the world. So basically, this is more or less where we are right now. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Melissa, next to you, I'd love to introduce you first. So Melissa, driven by her personal journey overcoming complex PTSD and disillusionment with mainstream medical health approaches, Melissa discovered healing through the world of psychedelics. Today, she serves as a community organizer, women's group facilitator, and psychedelic practitioner. Her work is embodied through Aphrodite Health, a conscious community where women can find holistic support through workshops, retreats, and community gatherings. Melissa is also a part of the Women on Psychedelics team, the organization dedicated to normalizing psychoactive substances and eliminating stigmatization around women's mental health and drug use. Her core missions include fostering community-oriented healing services, empowering women through the art of storytelling, promoting education and risk reduction in the realm of psychedelic exploration. And finally, actively working towards creating a trauma-informed society. Welcome, Melissa. So I wanted to ask you, you know, in our microdosing programs, we really emphasize to people really starting out by cultivating a container for healing in the first place, that the preparation you do in the months, weeks, years leading up to the practice is a very important part of the process. So I'd love to ask you for your perspective and reflections on the importance of the preparation process and some of the elements you bring to preparing for your retreats. Yeah, well, thank you for the introduction, first off, and for having me today, Casey. So I'll talk about how we prepare our participants for the retreats because they're one in the same with my own process. And what tools have been foundational in my own journey? And of course, it feels very alive for me. So as I evolve, so does the retreat preparation. So we work with four women at a time. So it's it's quite intimate. We start building the container with an in-person meetup about two months pre-ceremony so that we can start nurturing group connection. And in between, we really encourage them to come to Aphrodite Health Community events and meet other women doing the work. Some of the prep workshops incorporate nervous system education so they can understand the somatic expressions that tend to arise during these experiences and lean in and trust their body's wisdom. We also like to incorporate IFS because it pairs so well with psychedelic work and it's a great framework to use day to day. I'm a big fan of Adele LaFrance's work and her approach with emotion-focused family therapy. So we invite our participants to prepare family or friends who will be receiving them post-experience by writing them a letter, letting them know what to expect and what they might need coming out of the experience. And I love this exercise for a few reasons, but it gets people reflecting on their needs and working that asking for support muscle that so many of us struggle with. Of course, good preparation supports good integration. So we talk a lot about integration, building up both internal and external support teams for when they emerge. So massage, osteopath, acupuncture, uh, nature-based therapy, art making, body movement, mindfulness practices. We really emphasize the importance of body workers because they symbolize our, our modern day medicine people. And healing needs to include the body. 
We cover transparency, preparation of the vessel, shadow work, informed consent. So power dynamics that impact consent. Consent is being multi-layered. Um, we have them create space agreements and we, we share them collectively. My co-facilitator, she's a, an art therapist, and she often refers to Carl Jung that often the hands will solve a mystery that the intellect will struggle with in vain. So we break up a lot of the dense information and weave in art therapy throughout. And managing expectations, so not sugarcoating or skimming over the fact that things can feel worse before they feel better, no matter what we do to prepare. I love what Maria Papaspiro says that we don't choose what psyche and cosmos deliver, we have to humbly accept. So not glamorizing this work in the slightest. There's really so much more to it, but that kind of gives a, a nutshell of the guidelines we operate by. So we attempt to bridge the spiritual with clinical and ind indigenous. Beautiful. Thank you for that introduction. Lovely. Yeah. Micah. So introducing Micah Stover to you all. So Micah was raised in a highly misogynistic evangelical culture. She is a survivor of inter intergenerational trauma, and her introduction to psychedelic therapy followed a traumatic pregnancy and birth that unearthed a reservoir of unresolved trauma. The journey to heal those wounds transformed Micah's life, and she and her family now reside in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where Micah works as a certified psychedelic somatic therapist. She hosts individual healing retreats and trains psychedelic practitioners. She is committed to education and harm reduction and teaches an online course called Healing Psychedelics, from which the bones of her forthcoming book, also called Healing Psychedelics, is built. Her practice reflects a hybrid of study and training from the clinical indigenous approaches to working with psychedelic medicines. She is passionate about helping others understand the overlapping space where science and spirit meet within the psychedelic experience. Welcome, Micah. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. I'm so glad to be here with all of you. Thank you. So my question I wanted to begin with was around, Melissa touched on this word, transference. Yeah. So this is not talked about nearly enough. You know, I feel like so much emphasis is put on the medicine itself, right? Mm -hmm. And not in the therapeutic relationship and container of care that it's held within is so important. So for people who might not know what transference even is as a term, can you yeah. talk about what transference is and also how it weaves into the psychedelic experience? Yes. And I thank you for asking this question and helping bring conscious understanding and awareness to it, because I do believe, as you said, it's one of the most grossly under-discussed and misunderstood areas within the psychedelic space. And so you know, from, from my perspective, the element of transference can be equally, if not even in some cases, more impactful than the psychedelic medicine itself. And this is why it's so fundamentally important that we understand what transference is. So really, you know, the best way that I can think of explaining this is just is so that it's not so cerebral is to like speak in terms of concrete examples. You know, a lot of times when I get into psychedelic spaces or states of altered consciousness with clients, things will start appearing that are like not necessarily happening in real time because trauma doesn't differentiate time. 
the event memory of the past place ongoing in the present. And so this might sound like any number of things like, I think you're mad at me. I think you don't care about me. Or I'm scared if I tell you this thing that you won't like me anymore. You'll think I'm bad. All of these things are both like real and true in that moment, but their root is in the past because that is transferentially projected forward from the relational dynamic way back when. You know, Bessel van der Kolk, who I think most people listening have some sense of his role in this work. He wrote The Body Keeps the Score. And I heard him in an interview say once, all complex trauma is preverbal, meaning that everything that is happening there happens before we even had the capacity to explain or cognate in language about what was feeling. So when these things are coming forward, an embodied therapist who's well-trained and skilled can hold these transferential projections, really, and offer up some sort of corrective experience. That might sound like, I'm not mad. This, this thing that you feel is so awful is actually really normal for a little kid. Let's talk about it. So it's like the, the, the wound and the injury is about the absence of like a present and engaged supportive maternal or paternal figure. So because we're in such suggestive states of consciousness under the influence of psychedelics, you can, it is like almost palpable, like you can almost touch it. When you give this corrective input, you can watch that person's sort of sense of self reconsolidate around this possibility that this deepest truth, this deepest fear that they've always held is actually, it's not real, that they're okay. And that's the beginning of of amazing change. Now, (laughs) on the contrary, when there's not adequate training, and this is something we have to think about so much is like, we're still working in a lot of underground spaces and places and ways. And so there's a big difference between having some concept of being trauma informed versus truly trauma trained. So I, I just believe like the role of a guide is that of like the healthiest mother, father, grandmother, grandfather. And so we have to be really magnanimous in the face of those projections. In other words, we can't take it personally, right? But sometimes what I see when when, I, when people find themselves in my space is they're working through a re-traumatization where something that got, got brought up in that psychedelic state or space was perceived as the guide in a personal way. And so instead of having this said corrective experience that could be possible, there's another rupture and and potentially the opportunity for repair, but often not. So really, really, I could go on and on, but I won't. I mean, I think in a nutshell, that's kind of the core of what I would say about the role that transference really plays within certainly a clinical process of psychedelic therapy. Thank you. So important. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I've seen this in, in journey spaces, but also in microdosing spaces too. You know, anytime I think where people sink into a level of trust within the mm-hmm. container, that's when it comes up. And 
it's too, I see it over and over because we're in such a cancel culture moment, you know, next, next, mm-hmm. and just, oh, just unsubscribe them and move on. When, if you're willing to take the time, you're willing to go underneath it with someone, there's incredible power and richness. And if you, if you stick with it sometimes, that's when the big shift and the big healing can happen. So thank you for speaking to this, such an important topic. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Jessica, back over to you. I'd love to see if you have any reflections on preparation and any of the kind of non-psychedelic tools that can support someone's experience. Yeah, like, yeah, I can pick up from a lot of what Melissa shared because I resonate uh, so much with the way that she works. And this is basically how I try to do here as well with my own practice and what we are trying to co-create, yeah, together with uh, Whoop this year is really bringing more of these different sets of tools, holistic tools, to actually navigate the entire healing journey so that we take away the focus of the psychedelic experience. And this is just another tool to support people throughout their processes, but also like how can we empower women to cultivate different skills, different knowledges to actually feel more that they have more agency and that they have more support throughout their lives. So this is something that we are trying to bring this year as well with a new approach called the FEM approach, FEM approach, (laughs) which is focused on feel, move and express. And is really trying to bring this trinity of the body, mind and spirit connection and really create a set of events in person and online, but also throughout the preparation process of retreat experiences or ceremony experiences in which we can explore all these different areas or the, the areas in which the person and the woman has not yet have gone very deep into. So yeah, like... It has been interesting, I think, for me to see, like, I saw a big shift in the past years in the psychedelic space of people talking more and more about integration. But I do feel like we need to put more attention to preparation, actually, (laughs) because a lot of what unfolds in integration is deeply connected to how much preparation that the person had. So it feels sometimes to me like, okay, it's more like a post care attention instead of like focusing on that before so this is something that yeah we are trying to do together uh with with our own you know personal professional practices and yeah i find it's an exciting time to actually see what are all the tools that we have cultivated ourselves throughout our journeys but i like what are all the different tools that we are learning from each other and that we can bring to women so that they feel more empowered. Yes. Mm, thank you so much. And speaking to that, it's so inspiring. So many people in our, we focus on group work. And when people get to see each other's experience, we know some people, as soon as they start, as soon as they start with mushrooms, their process takes off. And other people, it takes longer. And we've seen unequivocally the determining factors, how much preparation they have done. You know, a lot of people unconsciously kind of have been preparing for mushrooms their whole life when they didn't know it. (laughs) And so it's like every training they've done, they often come in and go, I've tried everything. I've studied every modality. I've taken every training. (laughs) Nothing works. Nothing heals me. And then they start working with mushrooms. It weaves it all together and lights all the work and every step you've ever taken toward your own healing together. 
in that moment. So we really see, and then people who are coming in pure beginner who have done no work on themselves before, have never had therapy, have never done a contemplative practice, they still have effects, but it's a slower process and they really benefit as you brought up with these other non-psychedelic tools to open up the body and regulate the nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also like just to add to that, because I do see there's a different type of mindset when you are looking for a quick fix, right? When you come for the psychedelic experience and you don't want to put any sort of effort into preparation, then that most likely won't happen on integration either. But really emphasizing that it's a journey and that's just one step of the journey. It, it really brings up this idea of like, yeah, it's a commitment and it's effort and it unfolds with time and it's continuous and it's not just like a quick magic thing that is going to happen. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Melissa, I'm excited to, to ask this next question. I personally, when I came to mushroom practice, I, if you, those of you who know my story know that I healed a grand mal seizure disorder once I started mushroom practice that nothing else had touched, no Western meds and other practices I had tried. And within days, my seizure disorder has remained in remission ever since. And I've subsequently seen so many people working with mushrooms who've had amazing healing related to nervous system healing. However, those are kind of the extreme cases, but we've also seen so many conditions that people don't realize that are underlying their symptoms. It's actually nervous system dysregulation. So I know you really emphasize that in your preparation at Aphrodite. Can you talk a little bit about nervous system health and your perspective on healing that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this question. I could talk about the nervous system at nauseum. I think this information is so valuable and should be embedded within our our education system, not just in the within the psychedelic realm. So Sarah Baldwin is a wonderful somatic therapist, and I think she puts it quite well when she says we're inhabiting this super complex vehicle and we don't know how to be in the driver's seat of it. And so as a result, everyone is just kind of doing their best with no instruction manual for how to operate this very brilliant protective vessel. And our nervous system is impacting our entire lived experience. Our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, perception are a direct result of what's happening in our nervous system. So our nervous system is like our regulatory hub for key physiological processes like heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, respiration. And it also assesses and orchestrates responses to the state of alarm in the body. So the health of our nervous system really contributes to our overall health and our ability to tolerate stressors that we're going to encounter daily. And of course, trauma impacts the state of our nervous system. And what psychedelics do is facilitate a deep connection with the somatic body. They invite us into that primary state of consciousness that we see animals embody so well And this level of somatic processing can be facilitated via shaking or trembling. So I really believe that body-based therapeutic modalities really complement psychedelic work. So coming back to the work of Peter Levine or Saj Rosby, we're dropping into primary consciousness where most of healing is happening. 
because the nature of transformation happens at the level of the body through nervous system shifts or relational reenactments, corrective redos. So yeah, somatic processing can truly transform people, even when not fully understood on an intellectual level. Thank you so much. Yeah. Micah, back to back to you. So I one of my favorite pieces that I've read on the women on psychedelics platform was a piece on internalized patriarchy. And this is another thing I think that is so profound that is not talked about much at all. I have seen it over and over again in so many subtle, indirect ways in my healing career over the decades. And I think it's so important to talk about it, explain to people what it is, because in so many of our lineages, women have been the traditional medicine keepers. And so it's interesting as we bring these medicines back to our modern culture and society, all of these little subtle indirect things we do that prevent women from taking our seat mm-hmm. as the medicine keepers, wisdom holders. So I'd love for you to speak about this topic. What is internalized patriarchy and some examples of, of how, how it, it exists in the system? Yes, I love this question. And I could talk about it also ad nauseum, so I'll try not to, (laughs) but there's just so much here and you're speaking to all of it. I mean, first of all, is just the, let's name it. Let's really name that this is a big old elephant in the room and that, you know, not like the last question you asked me, transference, internalized patriarchy is not understood. So, Here's my sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about internalized patriarchy. We're referring to all the unconscious and insidious ways in which the dominant, misogynistic, patriarchal, capitalist order of the world has conditioned our thinking, our our orientation to our bodies, our orientation to relationships, our orientation to power structures, our orientation to our own worthiness. It is so pervasive. And part of what's so tricky about this is that it's it's so insidious. And it's been this way for so long that I don't even know where, I, I mean, I'm so grateful for this movement, this psychedelic renaissance that's happening now, because I think it's starting to crack this open, like where we are seeing what all is going on here. It's fascinating to me that if we look at so many ancient and indigenous cultures, they were matriarchal, right? This is fascinating. We should spend some time like really pondering this. The the women were the spiritual leaders of, of the culture and the men were out to protect and defend like the, the sacredness of all of that. And it wasn't this like, hierarchical thing where we needed to like be, you know, one upping each other. It was just the balance, the balance. And of course, to me, this makes so much sense because as women, we are the bringers of spirit from one side to the other. So we are, we are fundamentally in touch with this in ways that men are not. And I don't mean that in an anti-male way. I am the mother of sons. Like it was becoming the mother of sons that made me care 
so much about this that awakened me to all of this. So I, I think to go back to your question, we can see this showing up in, in like how we think about our bodies in disparaging ways, how we need to control the shape and form and expression of our bodies, how the female cycle is catastrophized. Like I have so many clients who come to me and they're like scared of their bleeding. And it's like, you know, again, in, in many indigenous settings, like women like celebrate and bleed together. And it's like a connection with the moon and the earth. And, you know, so I don't want to like overly romanticize it, but I do want to try to like suggest there's something primal here that we shouldn't resist. We should allow and tune into. I think other ways that I really see the patriarchalized feminine showing up, especially in female spaces and scary but true healing spaces is like the competing the need to compete, the need to be popular, the need to monetize, to commodify these sacred experiences. Like I'm really concerned when, when I see that going on, when the emphasis is on money over reciprocity, when there's an absence of sliding scale, when there's an absence of a practice of reciprocity that's transparent, these are all to me when I start scratching my head and, and really wonder, right? And I want to be clear too, because I, I don't want to come across in any way as pompous about all of this. Like I, I know this really well because I functioned with the internalized patriarchy running my life until it nearly killed me. You know, like I brought that same internalized patriarchy, which is like goal-driven, accomplished, don't rest, keep working, even into the most sacred feminine endeavor, which is to become a mother. So it was like, I'm going to get pregnant. It's a goal. And then my body struggled to get pregnant. So what did internalized patriarchy make me feel about myself? My body was the problem. So much more complicated than that. My body, in fact, was not the problem. It was like the internalized patriarchal sense of like accomplishment, push, strive. We have to deconstruct this if we are going to be able to, as women, take that right seat as the spiritual sort of leaders in our homes, in our communities. I mean, this is just so important. And, and also, I want to say that you know, I think when people start talking a lot about being in their power, mm, feels loaded to me, right? Because it's true. For so long, I was disempowered. And that was part of the internalized patriarchy. But I also think that to be in my power, it's just not this puffed up bravado. Like my kids don't need that to see me as empowered. They need, my power is felt by them in my embodiment. So often, like the medicine shows me every time I have questions, like, look at nature and I've got a good answer for you. You know, I often think of the, the lioness and the lion as like what embodied archetypes of like woman in power, man in his power. Like, I don't need to not be scary to be a good embodied mom. In fact, sometimes my... You know, my like primal roar is how they know they're safe, 
right? But it's also not about flexing muscles or proving points. It's like grounded through the earth. So yeah, I could go on and on, but I mean, in, that's that's like some of my thoughts on how we sort of work at deconstructing this inter- internalized patriarchal inside ourselves. Thank you so much. It's so profoundly important. And it's I've noticed lately in the past few months, it's coming up more and more in the female circles about calling each other and naming when we are unconsciously giving authority over to mm-hmm. men because it's so constructed and conditioned in us. You know, we just had this happen and no offense to Michael Pollan. He's great. No. He's done a lot. But some of the women that are our medicine keepers and, and ready to to bring it forth to the world, you know, had people coming to them and putting them in the position of authority, asking them questions. And they were so quick to say, go read Michael Pollan's book <laughs> go read, and to give that authority away. It was uncomfortable for them. And let's put this, what looks like the authority, what yeah. looks like the expert in power. And we got talking about like all these unconscious ways that we do that where women are expected to work for free. You know, that people won't pay $40 for a women's workshop who has 30 years of experience, but will turn around and pay $15,000 for a man's coaching program who has no experience, right? Mm -hmm. So we, I think talking about these things, really, we go, oh, I I did that. (laughs) We all have occasions where we did these things and, and give our power away or give unnecessary authority to Yes. And I, I, you, you made me think of one other thing, which you said in your original question, how if we look in, in older times, like ancestral lines, indigenous practice, many of the medicine keepers and holders were women. You know, that one of the things that's really come through to me in my own personal journey is this seeing. So in my lineage, many generations were midwives. And at the time when they were practicing, you know, midwifery was like, witchcraft and like, no, you need to go to the doctor. You'll need to be with those women, women doing their things. And it's like, oh, I see this through line, like, and how it's not new. It's just evolving. And I'm not working in the birth space in the same way that some of my great uh, grandmothers and great aunts were. However, it is like a reclaiming of this, this space. And And interestingly enough, one of my favorite aunts, I remember when I was really little, she was not a midwife, but she was kind of in the generation in between. And she said to me, and I didn't even understand it because I was probably five or six at the time, you need to be careful with what you know. I didn't understand what it meant entirely, but it, it was very clear that she was warning me about something. And so I think so much of my healing journey has been around deconstructing that I, I, yes, I do need to be careful with what I know, but not in the way that I think she meant it. I don't need to like push this away. I need to wield it with intention and integrity, with love, with care. But actually my intuition and my ability to to see is part of my, my strength as woman. 100%. Yep. I love what you said too. This just came up earlier this week. I was prepping for this interview and, you know, the universe always gives you examples. 
And there, I saw a thread of someone online was asking people who have experience in the psychedelic space to give their best kind of harm reduction advice on this thread. And a woman who runs a, one of the psychedelic societies contributed, women shouldn't journey around the time of their period in their luteal phase because dark things can come up. It can be a darker experience. And I was like, what a beautiful example of what we're talking about, right? Like to me, working with thousands of women over the years, that's a magical time. That is a magical time to work with healing, with spirit. It's the time in a women's cycle where the veil is very thin. And the more you work, you have a direct connection to spirit at that time. There's a reason why we are called to go inward where other people are more irritating. <laughs> it's, it's all conspired to happen that way by nature. And so yet we fear it and we put labels on it that are negative to hide and avoid it. It's, it's a beautiful example of what you just said. That, that is internalized patriarchy where we're scared of the dark inside ourselves that we, and it might not even be ours, but we have access to it. We are conduits. There's nothing to fear. We are, we can go into that dark and it can become a dance. And we know the shadows because the shadows tell us there's light. Like it is always an interplay of these things. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Jessica, back over to you. So I wanted to ask you, almost every day, week, I'm hearing about new psychedelic training programs and new clinics and facilitator programs, certification programs popping up. And I just love your vantage point on, for people who are thinking about coming into the field, what are some of the things to look for in a training program? And what do you think are some of the most important tools and skills to have or to learn as a guide and space holder, both clinical or indigenous tradition? A big question. (laughs) So, yeah, let me see where I can start, actually. So most people already come into the space and should do this work from a career transition or completely different areas in life. I know that this has been my story and from pretty much everyone that I know. And I feel like one of the things that I actually realized have been very useful for the work that I do, and it's not necessarily yet connected to trainings, but it was a very personal journey of like reframing and understanding that some of the traits and quality traits, personality traits that I have, that I have never seen as very positive, they actually become quite handy and mm. became like really big skills for the work uh, that I do today as a guide. So in that sense, I really do think that life experiences can be quite of a training um, <laughs> to inform someone to do this work, and especially adverse life experiences and the ability to be able to hold yourself throughout big transformational or difficult periods in life or like to actually hold the people that you know can be quite of a big skill set for the guiding work. That being said as well, like 
one thing that had really huge impact for me since I started working with psilocybin, well, one, two things was actually getting a trauma-informed facilitation training. Exactly for the points, very beautiful points that both Micah and Melissa brought. I, before I was doing this work without the trauma-informed training, and actually when I look in retrospective, I it kind of made me feel like, oh, damn, I, I wish I knew some things beforehand. <laughs> But it's really, it's really different the way that you hold the space and the way that you actually do the preparation of a person, the intake and everything else, and how you are actually providing a healing space and not opening space for more re-traumatization. So the training I actually took was a smaller training with Atira Tan, which I recommend her work. I find it, it she's amazing in this space. And it was very eye-opening and with a lot of concrete examples of things that can come up in ceremony and how, yeah, you know, how to best interact and make sure that this is going to be an experience that can bring reparation to that person and not uh, further, yeah, re-traumatization. Another thing for me, it was really like getting mentorship and apprenticeship from someone and have really that direct experiential knowledge pass by, which is something that I do know, like a lot of people do not have the chance to get that everywhere in the world. But of course, with internet nowadays, we do can get some of that uh, via Zoom. But that really, I learned a lot. Most of what I feel I know, it was learned from those means. Of course, getting like all theoretical knowledge through other trainings as well, like the vital training that I did, it was super, super helpful because it kind of gave me, I had this thing and I feel like a lot of facilitators do have that when they are setting up uh, in this space of like some sort of what, an imposter syndrome that you feel like you're never know enough or like there's always something more that you can learn. And then you go in this loop of like, oh, do I need to get certifications? Do I need to get different trainings? And with having more of the theoretical knowledge, a little bit about everything made me feel more secure in what I'm bringing to this work and how I'm bringing this work. I do find though that every person is different and every guide is different. And I think that's the beauty of it as well. It's like all of us with our different cultural backgrounds, our the knowledge of our ancestors, we have the chance to actually bring little bits of what resonates and speaks to us in a much deeper level. So I don't see like as there's one way of doing this work that is like kind of like the right way. And I say that because uh, here in Europe specifically, I just see a lot of guides trying to bring things from different cultures, but that does not necessarily resonate with them, but they are just trying to cherry pick different things than like, put it together and then you have like, <laughs> you know, and I find if you can actually bring more of your history and more of your ancestral wisdom and more of your culture, like that will actually translate in our work in a space that is much more aligned and much more, yeah, it makes yeah space for the healing to happen in a, in a way that feels right. So 
Yeah, I hope that answered your questions because I, I, I went a little bit everywhere. <laughs> beautifully so. No, beautifully so. I loved particularly your answer that the things that you may have perceived as your weakness through life actually becomes your gift and your superpower when it becomes holding space for other people. I yeah. see that again and again and again. And it's like, it also helps you make sense and heal your own history and past when you're able to transmute it into it being a superpower gift to heal and hold space for others. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. powerful points. Yeah. Micah, back over to you. The So the as we know, the mainstream media is very full of glamorous tales of Mm. psychedelics and what a journey experience is like, which is very different than what a journey experience is actually like. And disappointment is actually a big part of the process. Mm. And worse, sometimes journeys can be very destabilizing to damaging. So can you talk a little bit about reality (laughs) of actually working with people what can happen, and also any advice on what you have seen in terms of repairing when destabilization or harm has occurred. Yeah. Yeah, this is another such an important conversation topic, you know, and it's one of the things I'm most passionate about in this field is really like educating people on harm reduction. You know, I'm pretty open about the fact that, you know, the course that I teach Healing Psychedelics, which has now become my book, which will be out later this fall, was inspired by a very sad case of when this kind of work goes wrong. A young woman who I knew, she was she was not my client. I wasn't at that time yet really fully working in psychedelics. She was a client of mine years ago when I was just working in professional sectors as like a professional development coach. But she and I had maintained contact over the years and she reached out to me and it was very obvious she sounded quite manic and she was not herself. And so the long story short, she had gone to a retreat, said with air quotes, very intentionally because, you know, she got a flyer at like a yoga studio and She couldn't tell me what medicine she was served. It was a cocktail of different things. And she, there was no preparation. And in when the medicine started to take effect, she was instructed by the facilitator, who was a man, that she needed to really lean into corrective reparative touch. And at some point in this this experience, she blacked out. And so she doesn't really remember what happened, but it really doesn't matter because enough's already gone wrong. Melissa mentioned earlier informed consent. I highly recommend people in this work really get familiar with Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent. We do not know what consent is. Signing a waiver is not conscious consent. Anyways, this young woman also had a history of, and I want to preface this by saying I'm really like not pro-diagnosing people with conditions because I think the Western medical model has, has rushed to diagnose in order to resolve and then treat with medicines, not the, you know, the pharmaceutical kind. So I'm, I'm really not a big fan of that. 
Yet I also actually believe that probably almost all of us are somewhere along a neurodivergent spectrum. And depending on where we fall on that spectrum, we might have tendencies towards borderline or bipolar or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This young woman had some of that in her composition, we would say. And so when this experience happened to her, she lost her handle on, you know, like the the, the through line of her connection to the earth, herself, her sanity was blown up. And unfortunately, this happened right at the start of the pandemic. So what I often refer to, which I think Jess and Melissa both talked about, is how important it is to have a village of care established before you begin this work. The village of care was not there. Nobody was available. That young woman is no longer ersat. And, I, I, you know, it's a sad story, but I... And I've sat in ceremony and seen this young woman in ceremony, and she said, don't, don't grieve my passing, make it a testimony of accountability. Like we have got to talk about these complicated things. This just for lack of more technical terms, bullshit about it being a glamorous saunter through like, you know, expanding consciousness is part of the, you know, like white privilege perspective. It is not about trauma healing. And so this is all really complicated and why preparation is so fundamentally important, which both of these lovely women spoke to. You know, if people come to me and they're like, they have urgency, which I, compassion, I understand. I came to this journey with urgency. And thankfully the guide was like, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, we need to slow it all down. You know, if people aren't willing to take it slow, I'm not going to be able to help them because this is, and I think Jess said this, it gets worse before it gets better. We should almost certainly count on that. The ceremony, which people get scared of what's going to happen to me. Am I going to, my ego going to die? Let's hope so. And that will actually not be anywhere near as hard as when you land back in the earth and you have to figure out, well, what do I do now? Right? So I I do think we have to be really considering of that that preparation space and taking our time. And I think we have to be considering of if people have presentations that, that seem like they might be neurodivergent, making sure we're getting psychiatrists, other practitioners and experts involved. I want to be clear that I'm not saying people who fall into those categories can't receive benefit from this path of healing because I have seen people improve there. It's tricky because there's trauma, which we know the efficacy of this work with trauma, but then we don't have a lot of research and data yet on the efficacy of how this work works when we're truly neurodivergent, like in a more accentuated way. So I think we have a lot of responsibility to take care to really take care here. And and the last thing I'll speak to, and then I'll stop, is what you mentioned about repair. Again, I think like part of our role as therapists, as guides in this space is to hold that magnanimous, I'm here for repair. Like I want to give you the repair that you couldn't have as a kid. And also we can't force that. 
Like the other person has to be willing to show up to the repair. And I think, you know, for guides who are listening, and one of my, just, just spoke about mentorship. Most important teaching I think we can have is a good mentor. One of my best mentors said to me once when I was quite distressed about a situation, you know, honey, if you don't ever upset anyone, you're really not doing a good job. Because sometimes the truth is so painful. Looking at this stuff is so painful. Integrating is so painful. So any guides who are listening who are beating themselves up because they tried to repair and it, and they couldn't, you, you can't make that happen. You do the best that you can in your assessment and you hold the open door. And also you have to hold boundaries for your own self-care. You can't take, take it all on. So I could go on about that, but that's probably suffice for now. Beautifully said. Absolutely. So speaking of the village of care, I'd love to shift over back to Melissa and talk about the role of community. You know, my experience of psilocybin in particular, it's such a relational medicine. It loves to, in my experience, being in the hands of healers and being held in a container of care. It loves being held in community and groups. And I see so often the healing that people have it shows up in the relationships in their lives, the real life evidence of the healing that's taken place. So I'd love to, to learn more about your perspective on community and the role of relationship. I know that's a big part of what you do at Aphrodite. Yeah, well, I, I think fundamentally, we evolved in tribes and villages as hunter-gatherers. Our survival depended on it. So Our inherent nature as social creatures means that we aren't meant to navigate life alone and certainly not healing. Like we hear, we're wounded in relationship and it's also where we heal. So connection and social support are foundational to our overall health and and well-being. And I also see how community can offer people a sense of belonging uh, and meaning And we learn and we grow through one another. We're inspired through one another. You know, Micah has been an incredible mentor for me just as well. I'm not sure that I would have been pushed to to begin Aphrodite Health without her. So, yeah, the community is so important, whether it's virtual or in person. I think in person is wonderful, of course, but virtual also serves its purpose. And I think now in our modern landscape where isolation is prevalent, community building is is more important than ever. Thank you. Micah, I have one question for you that I know is an important part of your work and it it has been for, for mine over the years. So, and that is healing specifically women who are healing from childhood, often sexual and physical abuse. and through this process, you know, to witness women really for the first time reclaim their lives and spirit as their own mm-hmm. and heal the physical symptoms and emotional scars of that experience and watching them kind of step into who they were always meant to be mm-hmm. is really profound and heartbreaking and inspiring all at the same time. And so can you share a little bit about for women who are moving through this experience who do have substantial childhood trauma 
lessons that you have learned about psychedelics and creating safe spaces for women who are specifically healing from childhood sexual sexual abuse? Yeah, such a good and tender question. And, you know, I, I mean, I am myself a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. It is an intergenerational wound. And, you know, being a cycle breaker is a hard gig. It's a really hard gig. But we have already alluded to in this conversation that, I I mean, it is fundamentally my belief. And I know I want to be mindful of not sounding toxically positive because I hate that. We don't need to turn everything that's horrible into like a gift. And also, I would say that, you know, it has come to be my belief that somehow, somewhere along the way, I chose this life. My soul chose to be me. Like even with all the things that happened, I, I wouldn't change it. You know, the hurt hurts, but I'm able to, you use that word before, transmute. Like, it is astounding how many women and also men have been violated in this most, I mean, I think of sexual trauma as being a spiritual wound because that's how deep that hurt goes. And I think that the reason that psychedelics hold such promise here is because it is impossible. It can be impossible to look at, at this without the help of some sort of tool because it's too painful. It's too crushing, right? And then so many times, this is, this is an intergenerational story. Or even if it's not intergenerational, it's someone in the family or close to the family and nobody wants to believe it. Nobody wants to believe it. And so it gets, the person gets gaslit, the experience gets minimized. People are told they're dramatic, they're invalidated. And so they they get, get to adulthood. And, you know, one of my teachers often describes this, this sort of situation with trauma that we have learned to build a functional life of coping on top of our deepest, darkest nightmare. And that to heal, we need to stop with all the coping and we need to go into the nightmare and meet it with love. Right. And so for me, you know, that has been what this path has meant personally, but also professionally is like to witness that suffering and not turn away. You know, like, and I want to give credit to who I heard say that first is a wonderful worker in this field named Laura May Northrup, that that is the role. We are not here to comfort. I mean, if we can be a comfort, great, but like the impetus when we see someone hurting to lean in and like soothe them, we need to be careful with that touch. We need to make sure to have we asked consent, like what we're really here to do is be an anchor of safety in the storm of despair. And if we can do that, then I think that people can begin to, you know, rehabilitate their body. Like when I started my my path personally of, of psychedelic therapy, my sexuality was not anything on my list of priorities, which is telling 
that I didn't even think of it as a priority. (laughs) One of the first felt sense shifts for me after psychedelics was that I had an orgasm. I mean, I hopefully not TMI, but I'd never had one before. And I had two children. That's telling. I was so disassociated from my body that I I couldn't feel anything. I had anesthetized pain, but also without meaning to pleasure. And actually being able to be in a receptive space of pleasure, go back to that internalized patriarchy question. This is part of what we are supposed to embody as women, right? Like I believe The orgasm is not this sexual commodified thing, but it is the vibration of life itself. Like it's the creative principle. And so we have to know that. And when we've been sexually traumatized, we're we're like that cord gets cut. And so we have to stitch it back together. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question. <laughs> Jessica, I'm going to zoom way back out now. <laughs> so I always love speaking to people who are direct, doing the direct work in the field, you know, because it's a lot of what we read about and the public hears about is from people who aren't directly working <laughs> with with people. So I would love, you know, this field, especially in the last three or four years, it's just dizzying right now, the pace of it right now. And so I would love for Jessica go first, but each of you to reflect on kind of the pace of things. What what are your biggest concerns that you have when you kind of look out, zoom out and see how things are progressing? I think you already touched on the question itself, the pace of things. (laughs) Yes, Uh, that would be a big one. In a few different aspects, I think Micah explained very beautifully when it comes to preparation of like, yeah, for people that are coming into the spaces and how this has been done. I think it's a big concern for me because I see a lack of it or like this sense of urgency and really full lack of awareness of some people that are coming to ceremonial spaces and having those experiences and ending it up in a, in a mental state, emotional state that is even worse than before. So that would be one. And I feel like in, in a way, this is also directly connected to how people nowadays are trying to bring this work to more people and like, in a broader scale to make more money and to, yeah, you really see that when you have like this money-driven mindset and like to get more clients as possible or to make the host the biggest amount of retreats as possible or to grow as quick as possible, you really kind of lose the sense of why you are doing this work in the first place. So I don't see these two things as disconnected, but I think that has been the pitfall in in the past and in so many other fields that are not connected to this one either. It's it's just like the way it it goes in our capitalistic system, right? We would like to think that the psychedelic space would move differently because 
mm-hmm. we are more aware or we think differently, but I haven't been seeing much of that, unfortunately, quite often. And we have very big examples of that in the past year here, uh, specifically in the Netherlands, even with the closing of Synthesis Retreat, which was well, quite a big shock for a lot of people. But also Field Trip had like a branch here in Amsterdam and they also closed because, yeah, it was just not aligned with what actually this work with the medicine is about. So I feel, yeah, my concern is really, are we going to be able to actually have a deeper understanding of that and how we are bringing this into the world and what scale we are bringing it? Does it have to be for everybody? Does it have to come quickly for everyone? And really placing those questions. And also, as Micah said, the question of reciprocity is really important. Melissa said something before that I didn't jump in, but I feel like it would be really important uh, for me to speak to about community. Mm. And really here is just to also like leave a really big appreciation note for yeah, both of these women that are here yeah, with us today in the podcast. Because, you know, since the start of Women of Psychedelics, like they have been really big in my professional and personal growth, but also like we became friends with time. And we are talking a lot today about the importance of community and support systems for people that are, you know, going to journeys, but also like the support system that you can have as a guide or someone who is doing this work in one way or another. I find it can have, yeah, it's it's also equally as important. and. I see that we have done that very beautifully with our organization. And yeah, I also see how that also helped us go slow with everything that we are doing. And this is also like we are taking the time to see like, okay, what are we going to actually, how do we want to actually move and be in this psychedelic space? So, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. No, I appreciate that addition so much. And I've been reflecting on that. I'm reading Rachel Harris's book. Um, swimming in the sacred right now and about all she interviews 15 underground female medicine keepers that are all underground and intentionally underground and reading that book I'm reflecting on just as you three have your relationship the women I have a similar relationship to that I've become really close with we're colleagues we're doing similar work in different countries and we've just grown together over the past three or four years and I feel like it's so especially vital for our this moment, this generation, because as women medicine keepers, we have had to be isolated underground mm-hmm. for so many generations. Women have had that fear, that ancestral fear of. So I think as we move forward, having these, the bonds that you three have, mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful example of, I think, the, the solidarity and connection and learning that we all have to share with each other is really profound. So thank you. Beautiful point. Melissa, how about you when you zoom out and what are, what are the greatest concerns you're having right now? Yeah, definitely echo everything Jess shared. The glamorization of psychedelics, medicalization. I worry that the focus on psychedelics might overshadow the importance of community building and safe relationships. Just touched on this earlier, and I think Micah as well, the lack of trauma-informed practices among practitioners, I think is really troubling. 
and it can increase the risk of re-traumatization, which will diminish the therapeutic benefits as well. So I think in essence, my concerns really revolve around maintaining a balance and ensuring that psychedelics are recognized or the power of psychedelics are recognized within the context of safe relationships and community support. Thank you. Micah, how about you? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's coming to mind for me, I mean, echo everything that both of these ladies have already said. And some of the things I shared earlier about the, you know, really assessing to see, you know, is this person's mental composition well suited for this work? That's really, really important to consider because we just, we don't have enough research yet to know all of those twists and turns that the mind can take. There's a really great episode with a doctor named Hillary McBride on We Can Do Hard Things, Gwyneth Doyle, her podcast. She interviews Hillary McBride. And I think in that episode, there's this, the whole thing is really good, but there's a short section where she describes really the science behind why it's important to be careful if we have truly like neurodivergent tendencies, what what are the risks when we're working with medicine? So I'll just footnote that for people who are curious, because I, I really want to be mindful of also not, we need to destigmatize neurodivergence. Like, I mean, myth of normal. Hello, it's a great big myth. <laughs> we're all more divergent than I think typical. But anyway, so there's that. But the other thing that really comes to mind for me, Melissa and I had a great opportunity of being at Psychedelic Science this past summer in Colorado. And I'm bringing this up because in the closing ceremony of that conference, something really remarkable and important transpired, which is that, you know, this whole week of you know, wonderful content, great presentations, so much community. Talk about a sense of community. There's like 13,000 people there. So interestingly enough, none of the keynote speakers reflected Indigenous perspective. Like there were panel discussions here and there, and there might be like a Indigenous voice in that panel. but. But this is a concern for me. This is a big concern for me. And this is what happened is, is the conversation got started. Somebody sort of raised their hand and then went on stage and said, why? Why have we been relegated to the side when this is this is our birthright? This is our work and not even in an ownership sort of way, but like, please let us help you so you don't botch this, you know, like with humility and grace. So I guess one of my concerns is about the colonization of this work. You know, I have had many people who have gone on faraway retreats in faraway lands and deeply immersive for a week or two weeks. And it's not even that the experience was bad, but that then they came back to their life and they were not, they were not better. They were worse. And it's not because anything over there happened that was wrong or bad. It's because that experience was ultimately, an, you know, it was somewhat appropriated, right? Because in that set and setting, that work thrives. It is the backdrop. But to, to do all of that and be there and then come back to this myth of normal world where everything's still fast paced and competitive, 
is going to make people feel like so disoriented, so destabilized. So I, I am not saying that we shouldn't go and do these things. I'm, I'm saying that we need to be conscious about this. We need to understand that we're different and that there's an opportunity to wed where, where science and spirit meet and nobody needs to compete. And so my, my concern and also my hope is that my concern is that we don't compete. And my hope is that we, we learn from each other. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. All of you. So I love, love to ask my guests in closing, and Jessica, we'll start with you, to suspend all reality. (laughs) And in your dream of dreams, you know, in your highest vision, how can you envision psychedelics and earth medicines being incorporated into society in this moment, into our culture in this moment? No limits. Yeah, I feel in this touches with a lot that we have discussed today, but like I do feel like these medicines have a really big potential to bring us closer to each other and actually help us relate even deeper to one another, which is also something that in the past years we have seen like a big rise on polarization and all of that. So I would be very curious to see how we can use plant medicine and psychedelics in a way that fosters more of community building and yeah, being with each other or like maybe even initiation rituals or things like that. And another big aspect that I find really important for me on a personal level, and we didn't have the time to discuss this today because I feel like it's a topic for a whole other podcast anyways, <laughs> is how actually we could use psychedelics to further connect us with nature or like with the understanding that we are nature. So in my dream or like this vision for a more beautiful world would be like to actually have like retreats in which you are trying to rebuild the ecological ego and you have like work with permaculture of like working with the earth and doing more practices in nature and like kind of like bringing psychedelics in the middle of all of those so yeah if somebody's doing something like this out there please let me know i would come for it because it's really exciting so That's beautiful. And maybe that's the the future HQ of women on psychedelics. <laughs> beautiful vision. Thank you. Melissa, you want to share next? Yeah. So I think there's an order that we need to go in. And so I think we need to lay some serious groundwork for a culture that can responsibly and healthily incorporate psychedelics. So At the risk of sounding redundant, I think we need to build a community-oriented world. And I think we need to cultivate a trauma-informed society as well. Uh, It needs to be the expectation, not the exception. So spaces that acknowledge and address the collective and individual traumas uh, we carry because there's that much trauma. And I don't think psychedelics are the cure. 
I think they're a powerful medicine, no doubt, but without community, they're only going to take us so far. Hmm. Thank you. Micah, how about you? Yeah, similar feelings to both of these perspectives. I, you know, I think one of the most profoundly psychedelic experiences I've had in my life was moving here with my family to Mexico, you know, because everything is different here. Um, Certainly there are some things that are similar, but what do I mean specifically? I mean that in general, especially when I go into like more indigenous spaces, I see these very predominant core values. And one of them is like community, like no, nobody is this hyper individualized being. They're connected to their village and there's so much support and safety in that. They are also deeply connected to the earth. Like it is, it is like, like the ocean is like a character in our lives. You know, it's like a relationship, right? And also there is a sense of ritual and ceremony as like, this is the fabric of life, right? And so all of those things becoming like integrated into my life was medicine, right? And so I I think my dream is that we could have more of that, which I think is what both of these ladies were speaking to, like more connection with the earth, more of a sense of community. I would also love to envision a world in which families have like a psychedelic apothecary. You know, they have a little medicine cabinet where instead of just going for the default antibiotic or, you know, pain med or whatever, not that there's never a place for those. I'm not too rigid, but that we know that there are, you know, what is that? There's a beautiful book, Braiding Sweetgrass. If you haven't read it, read it. Like in some languages, plants are considered the healers. Like, you know, they're the ones who come to us to take care of us. We have so much medicine in the earth. And so, yeah, my dream is that that all becomes like, I would love for my sons to, to grow up in a time where this patriarchal war on drugs was deconstructed and we'd reclaimed these medicines as like items of the earth that belong to the earth. And we are borrowing in a right relationship where there's reciprocity that, that would be amazing. Love it. Thank all of you so deeply, so deeply. We'll add all of your links and websites in the show notes, but I'd love briefly for those who are listening in the car to share how to find you if folks want to follow you. I know we each kind of have our favorite platform that we share most of our work on. So if you want to share that, Micah, you want to go first? Sure. So I have, my website is my name, Micah Stover Consulting. People can find me there and I have a newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter that lets people know about offerings or like when we do, when I do podcasts, I'll share all those things there. I'm also my main platform that I share content on is Instagram. And my, my Instagram handle is Micah Sugarfoot. That was the name given to me by my, my grandfather, who was really my spirit guide in this life. And yeah, so those are great ways to find me. And thank you. 
My sugar foot. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And can you remind everybody the name of your book when it comes out so they can find it? Yes. Thank you for asking. So it's called Healing Psychedelics, Innovative Therapies for Trauma is the subtitle. And it is due to be out in November of this year. So please stay tuned. Congratulations. (laughs) Look forward to it. Thank you. And Melissa, how can folks find you and Aphrodite? Yeah, we're most active on Instagram and the handle is at Aphrodite Health uh, underscore. We also have a website, AphroditeHealth.co, where people can subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on retreats and workshops and circles. We have a Facebook page too, not so active on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. And Jessica, where can folks find you and women on psychedelics? Yeah, they can find me also. My website is my own name. <laughs> so jessicalagad.com or on Instagram. I use the handle The Global Paths, uh, in which I like to share more on storytelling, a little, a little bit about my own life's personal journey and also, yeah, the work that I do. And people can find us on womanonpsychedelics.org. We are also on Instagram as Women on Psychedelics. So yeah, just if you sub- subscribe to the newsletter, like I'm trying to be a little bit more consistent with the creation of it, <laughs> but we have much more content running on Instagram, but we'll be updating people on the newsletter on events and everything else. Well, thank all of you so, so much. It's been a treat. I know everyone listening will love it. So follow these women, support these women and thank all three of you for being with us today. I really appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Microdosing for Healing podcast. Are you ready to take the next step? Please visit us at microdosingforhealing.com to access our free Microdosing 101 workshop. In it, you'll learn more about our diverse community, our supportive group programs, and discover if earth medicine practice might be right for you. See you in the next episode.